Well, good morning again. It's wonderful to bring God's Word to you again. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, please take it out and turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Now, our sermon this morning is going to be on 2 Samuel chapter 9, but uh, I want to give a little bit of context to that passage. So we're first going to read a few verses from 1 Samuel chapter 20. First uh, Samuel 20 is, a, is an emotionally charged scene. It's a, it's a promise uh, that happens between a man named Jonathan and a man named David. Uh, now David, he's a huge character in the Old Testament. He really became the gold standard for the kings of Israel. Uh, he wrote many of the Psalms. And he's uh, remarkably known as, as the great, 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 a few more greats, grandfather of Jesus. And what's interesting is when Jesus walked the earth, uh, people would cry out to him and say things like, a son of David, have mercy on me, because Jesus came from the line of David. So 1 Samuel chapter 20, it sets up the context for our text uh, that we'll read afterwards. And we're just going to go through a few little snippets of this conversation. If you look at your Bible, so you have a physical copy, you'll probably see uh, some headings around chapter 20, chapter 19. Uh, says, Saul tries to kill David. Now, if you're unfamiliar with, with the book of 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is the king of Israel. And uh, God has rejected him as king and anointed, or had, anoint, uh, had uh, David anointed as the new king. But Saul was still king at the time, and he, he saw that David was the man after God's own heart, and so he wanted to kill David. And so that's what we see coming into chapter 20. Uh, David comes to his friend Jonathan, and Jonathan is the son of Saul. He's the crown prince. He's rightfully next in line. And David and Jonathan have this conversation, and David says to him, hey, your dad wants to kill me. And so they come up with a plan uh, to protect David. But follow with me. Look at verse 12. We'll read verse 12. This is the conversation that's happening before, uh, between Uh, David and Jonathan, as they're walking through the field, talking about uh, how they're going to avoid David being killed by Jonathan's father. So 1 Samuel 20, starting at verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, then I shall not send and disclose it to you. And shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more so if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And this is the, this is the key part we want to pay attention to. If I am still alive, and this is when David becomes king, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, "May May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so, as the story continues, you can read it uh, when you go home today. David hides from Saul, and he doesn't show up to a, a, um, a dinner party. And Saul gets quite upset about that, and he 
shows Jonathan just how angry he is with, with him and, and how he's trying to protect David. Take a look at verse 32 for a minute. <clears throat> verse 32, And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, and he ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. Well, now let's turn to our text, the passage that we're going to spend some time on this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 9. So flip forward to 2 Samuel to chapter 9. It's important for us to note that 20 years has now passed from the story we just looked at to the story we're going to look at now. I'm going to explain the context later into the message. So right now we'll just read through the chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 9. (coughs) David is now king. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And David said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. (coughs) Excuse me. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to, his, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your, servant's master, your, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son that was named Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servant. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. It'll be helpful if you kept that open in front of you as we, as we work through this, as we'll work through the passage pretty well verse by verse. But let's first uh, just say a brief prayer before I go into the message. Let's pray. Most holy and awesome Father, we thank you for bringing us all here. 
Father, it's amazing. We're, we're in one sense, perfect strangers. I don't know any of them uh, other than from two weeks ago. And yet, Father, we're here because of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Jesus Christ, and we come to listen and learn from your word. And so we thank you for this. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for this passage that we can learn now how it all points to Jesus. Help us to listen well and help us to open up our hearts and move your spirit in this congregation so that we would respond and worship to our Savior. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear congregation, uh, because I'm in America, I thought I'd start with an American story. I thought that would be appropriate. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been alive. Uh, in 1963, uh, Pastor Paul would have been nine years old in that year, just to put it in perspective. But in 1963, J.F. Kennedy was uh, killed. And if you were alive back then, you would know uh, just how crazy, how that, how that news shocked the world. When I was reading some articles uh, it was talking about how people were, were weeping openly in the streets and, and, and schools were shut down. People were gathered around radios. And the big question that was on everyone's mind was, was what happens now? What do, what do we do? That was the headlines that were through a, a couple of the papers I was looking at. What happens now? And that's, that's the mood in, in one sense in Israel as the Old Testament begins the story of Second Samuel. We didn't have a chance to read it. It would take a long time to read through both these books before we preach. Uh, but you should do it when you go home. And, and read the story of how the nation of Israel, in the very beginning of Second Samuel, had lost their king. Saul was killed by the Philistines. And to make matters worse, not just Saul, but also his son, the crown prince. And the question that's on everyone's mind is this. What happens now? What do we do? Is this... The moment, is this when, when David is going to come in as, as the anointed king and he's going to take over the throne and, 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 and lead Israel back to its glory or something like that? Well, the simple answer is, is yes. That's the trajectory as you read through 2 Samuel. That's, that's what happens. It records David's rise to the throne. And, and as you flip through the pages, you'll notice that it wasn't as simple as just taking a crown and putting it on David's head and saying, okay, you're king now. It was a bloodbath for David to get to the throne. There was a civil war that erupted, but over the course of time, uh, the war was won by David and he established himself as king. It's interesting, 2 Samuel chapter 8, right before our passage, it gives us a picture of what it was like to have David as king. It says that David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and equity to all his people. You see, life was, life was good having David as king. And so that's the context leading up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. The years of civil war are behind them. Uh, a king is seated on his throne. He's a king after God's own heart. And his kingdom is marked by justice and equity. The dust of the civil war uh, has settled now. But the story is not over. It keeps going. There's still some housekeeping to do. There's still a son of Saul, of Jonathan, that's still alive. Someone in his family that's still alive. And it's a young man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. I'm going to say it wrong a few more times. We're going to get those ones out of the way. It's a hard name, Mephibosheth. I practiced it a lot on the way up. Mephibosheth. He's still alive. He's a son of Jonathan. 
And as we see David's kindness towards Mephibosheth, we're given a glimpse in preview form of the kindness of David's great descendant, King Jesus, to disgrace sinners like me and disgrace sinners like you. And so that's what we're going to explore this morning. And we're going to see it through this theme, a grace for the disgraced. Grace for the disgraced. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at this point, uh, the grace of the king. And then we're going to finish off by what it means uh, to feast at the table of grace. So grace, the grace of the king. The grace of the king. Uh, Our chapter opens with David uh, asking a question, uh, maybe to himself or or to the officials that are around him. You can follow with me in verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? That I may show him kindness. Now that's a, that's a backwards question. If you're a student of history, uh, you'll know that the first order of business is uh, to kill off anybody else if you're establishing yourself as king. Anyone who might try to steal the throne from you. Uh, but, but David here, he's an exception. He doesn't do that. In fact, he actually does the complete opposite of what any of the other pagan kings in his time would have done. And he doesn't simply just uh, let the children of his enemies uh, live, but he he seeks them out so that they may show so that he may show them kindness. And what does that what does that mean? He wants to show them kindness. Does that mean that David just wants to send them a um, a letter, uh, a birthday card on their birthday, or or does that mean he just wants to take them out for a nice dinner or something like that? Is that what's going on here? Well, that, no, that, that doesn't really capture uh, this sense of kindness. We're going back to Hebrew again, so bear with me. But the Hebrew word here is, is hesed, and maybe you've heard of that before. Hesed, it shows up all over the Bible, and it's typically translated in our English version as steadfast love. Steadfast love. Maybe some of the kids here uh, have a book at home called the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We've been reading it as a family And there, Sally Lloyd-Jones calls this uh, hesed love, God's never stopping, his never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. See, see, hesed, it's tied up into this buzzword here, a a covenant. Uh, A covenant is like a relationship that's between two parties. And throughout the Bible, God's relationship to his people is referred to as a covenant. And if you read the Bible, you'll see it all through where God uh, loves, loves, loves his people. And God's people fail, fail, fail. And that's covenant love. God just keeps pursuing his people even when they turn away from him. Okay, so that's a bit of a tangent. What's covenant love got to do with this story? Why does David want to show this hesed love, this, this kindness to the house of Saul, his enemy. Well, David uh, tells us. It's for the sake of this man named Jonathan. As you recall in our background reading, we read how Jonathan made David promise. He made David promise, do not cut off your unfailing kindness, same word, your hesed kindness, your hesed love from my family. And David, he, he, he swore to Jonathan, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll never kill off your house, Jonathan. I love you. And in this scene in chapter 9 that we're reading, 
David is preparing to make good on that promise, a promise that he made 20 years ago. Well, in verse 2, the story continues. We're introduced to a man named Ziba. And there's two things that we learn about Ziba. He's just a minor character here, but he comes up later in the book. But for now, it's, it's interesting to know he's, he's a wealthy guy. He has lots of kids, lots of servants. And what's interesting is he was, he was once a servant of Saul. Now, likely what happened during the course of the Civil War, uh, Ziba must have switched loyalties over to King David. And so he, he stands now before David. And, and again, uh, David asks Ziba this question. Is there still someone in the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness of God? Stop there for a second and just, just notice the subtle difference. David just asked the same question, but he asked it in two different ways. The first time he mentioned that uh, he was doing it for Jonathan's sake, and that's going to come up later, of course, but, but he asked Ziba the question. Uh, he explained that he wanted to show this heir of Saul the kindness of God. He wanted to show him the unfailing kindness of God. You see, David... He understood something very important, that it was entirely because of the Lord that he now sat on the throne. It was, it was God who initiated his love for him when he was just this young shepherd boy. He was a nobody. He was a, the youngest in his family. He had no credentials. But still, he was uh, anointed to one day rule over Israel. See, God's love had been poured into David's life. And then he sought to pour that love into the life of someone who was supposed to be his enemy. Let that, let that just sink in for a minute. This is not the main point, but I do think that, that David's kindness here, it's instructive for us. And so he initiates this kindness and, and he's rewarded with an answer. As Ziba told him that there's still someone, there's still a, a son of Jonathan. And that would have just like blown David's mind. Because he didn't know that Jonathan had a son who was still alive. He, he probably had no idea. And the news, it would have just would totally rock him to the core. His, his best friend had a son, and that son was still alive. But Ziba, he wasn't done. He added that the son of Jonathan was a cripple. The son of Jonathan, he, he couldn't walk. Now we're jumping into the, the middle of 2 Samuel here. And so we've missed the fact that, that the narrator of the book has already mentioned this, this son of Jonathan. So flip back to chapter 4. This is really fascinating. 2 Samuel chapter 4. And look at verse 4. The narrator just slips this in, not making much comment of it until it comes up later in our passage. But 2 Samuel 4.4 4 says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, the news that they had been killed. And his nurse took him and, and, and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell. She must have fallen on him or something, uh, and, and he became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth the cripple. 
Why did Ziba mention that? You know, maybe he was implying uh, to David that Mephibosheth wasn't really any threat. He was never going to raise up an army uh, against David to overthrow him. Uh, No one would ever follow this guy. See, in that day, in the culture of that day, being a cripple, it wasn't just a physical disability. It was a social one. Cripples were, were shamed and they were excluded from the rest of society. Being a cripple was seen as a, a total disgrace. And maybe you know that feeling all too well. So maybe you have a disability and, and you felt that sharp pain of people looking down at you. Or, or maybe worse, just completely ignoring you and treating you as if you weren't even there. And you know, what's, what's so sad here is that this wasn't what it was always like for Mephibosheth. When you read through uh, different parts of the Bible that, that tell the chronology, uh, it, it says that, that, that this son of Jonathan was born uh, with the name Meribael. Meribael in Hebrew means a contender of Baal, contender of the gods. He was born by the, to the crown prince to one day be the contender of gods. He was born to be a warrior. He was born in line to be king of Israel. But then everything changed. His whole life turned upside down. His father and his grandfather were killed in battle. And so it seems that his name changed. And he was given the name Mephibosheth, which interestingly means breathing shame or scattering disgrace. Mephibosheth, he was hidden away in a place called Lodabar. And, and even that name has, uh, is telling. The, the place literally means no word or no thing. So disgraced and crippled Mephibosheth living in nothing town. We would say he's living in the middle of nowhere. And, and he's a safe distance away from, from, from David, the new king. And every day of his miserable life, he sat in Lodabar. He was an outcast. Uh, he was a cripple, a refugee. At the bottom of every social ladder, he was a story of, of riches to rags. And he lived his entire life fearing that one day the king would find him and kill him. Well, the story goes on. David sends for Mephibosheth. And can you, can you imagine the fear that must have drove into Mephibosheth's heart? You can imagine the scene with me. Maybe it went something like this. Mephibosheth uh, hears the knocking on the door. And the door opens and, and he overhears the conversation. Uh, we're the king's men and we're looking for Mephibosheth. Is he here? And as the soldier's boots come tromping through the house, uh, Mephibosheth's heart it just starts to beat faster and faster as they approach. And, and, and then they turn the corner and they look at him and he just cries out, what do you want with me? I'm, I'm a nobody. I, I'm no threat. Don't, don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And they inform him, you've been summoned by the king, Mephibosheth. You're coming with us. Grab your things. We're going now. You see, Mephibosheth was only five years old when his father and grandfather died. He probably knew nothing of the promise between David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel. 
And so as he went before the king, we can picture him trembling with fear as he fell to the ground. This, this cripple from the line of dead king, a refugee hidden in the middle of nowhere, laid face down before the man who he presumed would kill him. He was totally disgraced. And what did David do? Did he kill Mephibosheth as was his right as a king? No. No, David, David said to him, Mephibosheth. I wonder, I wonder how he said that. In your ESV Bibles, there's an exclamation mark put up behind his name. That's, that's not there in the original Hebrew. How did he say it? I know you've had a couple of sermons on the parable of the prodigal son. And, and when I read this, maybe his, his tone was similar to the father in the parable of the prodigal son, crying out, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Like That's the emotion that's in this scene. David thought the line of Jonathan was dead, but it wasn't. Mephibosheth was standing right there in front of him. And so he just cries out, Mephibosheth. And he replied, Behold, I am your servant. I'll, I'll do anything you want, David. Just don't kill me. And then David spoke life-changing words to Mephibosheth. Read with me in verse 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And overwhelmed by this great reversal, Mephibosheth said to David, What is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog such as I? You see, he, he understood his disgrace and his unworthiness. And he was overwhelmed by the kindness of the king. But here's the thing that we're going to pause on for a minute. Uh, th this, this is also a gospel story about you and me. See, we're really no different. Uh, what we need to realize this morning is that we are all Mephibosheth. You're Mephibosheth. And you're Mephibosheth. And you're Mephibosheth. Think about it this way. In Genesis 1... God created Adam and Eve, our first parents, and he crowned them uh, king and queen, his, his representatives to rule the world, to subdue it. And as his descendants, as their descendants, we were in line to share in that throne <clears throat> and in that privilege. <clears throat> but then the fall into sin happened. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. Uh, they wanted to do things their own way. They wanted to live for their own glory and not for God's. See, they also went from riches to rags. They were disgraced and they were filled with shame. Fallen humanity got kicked out of the garden. And, and even today, that's the default position of every person ever born. By, by nature, we're crippled by sin, by disgrace. We're filled with shame. We're cast from the presence of God, living in nowheresville. And by rights, we deserve nothing but the wrath and the judgment from the king of heaven and earth. 
we are Mephibosheth. But the great gospel reversal was brought by Jesus Christ. Romans 5, Paul, Paul talks about this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The sending of Jesus into this world is the kindness of the king. It's God's hessed love on full display for all the Mephibosheths in this world. And through Jesus, the son of David, God's wrath against our treasonous sin is satisfied. Through Jesus, our, our crippling weight of sin is removed. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. You see, there's no room uh, for self-righteousness here. Religion tells us, you know, if you clean yourself up, maybe then God will love you more. And God flips that on its head and says in the gospel, while we were enemies, you were reconciled by the love of God. And it's only when we realize our sin, our disgrace, that we're just these dead dogs, that we can fully receive the grace of God. I have a hymn here uh, that I think captures this sentiment. Who am I? That the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt. Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? But you know, some of you here this morning, you already know this. Maybe you make the same confession as Mephibosheth. You're just a dead dog. I'm a disgrace. But then you stay there. You have the shame from your past that you just can't get rid of. And, and you show up to church week after week hearing how Jesus can take your shame and give you honor, but you just can't get yourself to believe it. It's just too good to be true. Not, I, don't, I don't know you all. I, I don't know your shame. I don't know what you did last night or what you did 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago. And I, I don't know what's been done to you that makes you carry shame today. But what I do know is Jesus offers to take our shame onto himself. And he offers freedom from even our shame. There, there can still be sadness for what's happened to you or for what you've done. But your crippling shame, it can be surrendered to Jesus. And it can be given to him completely. You see, when Mephibosheth, he was confronted with David's life-changing words, he made this confession, but he didn't then turn and go back to Lodabar. He didn't go back. He, he didn't return to his prison of shame. He received what was offered to him, and he took his seat at the, at the king's table. And the question for each of us is, will you receive that this morning? Will you believe that Jesus can take even your shame 
and that he can nail even that to the cross. David took Mephibosheth and all his disgrace and he bestowed on him unexpected and undeserved grace. And Jesus takes us and all our disgrace and our shame and he bestows on us unexpected and undeserved grace. Now, if we just stopped right there this morning and I said, oh man, that would be, that would be great and that would be an amazing gospel. But here's the thing. It gets even better than this. It gets even better than this. And we're going to really briefly look at that in our second point. Feasting at the table of grace. What does it mean to feast at this table of grace? Well, that's what's so uh, incredible about this story, that, that dead dogs get to feast at the table of grace, at the table of the king. We're going to move through the rest of the chapter quite quickly. In verse 9, if you look through it, there's a, a, a flurry of, of, of motion. David went beyond his promise to Jonathan. He, he brought Mephibosheth into his home. He gave him his grandfather's land. He gave him a place at his table. This is a story of, of riches to rags to riches again. Ziba, he gets called back in, and he's given uh, the task of taking care of Mephibosheth and all his fields, and, and he agrees to do that. And then Mephibosheth, he just, he just sits there. He, he just sits there, completely taken care of by David. The disgraced receives grace. He, he's still crippled. The, the consequences of what happened to him it doesn't just disappear. But he's transformed from his shame to someone who is valued and someone who is loved by David. I find it very interesting at the very end of the chapter, it, it gives us this reminder again. Oh, by the way, Mephibosheth, the one we've been talking about, yeah, he was lame in both feet. It's almost as if the narrator wants to reinforce the incredible grace that's bestowed on Mephibosheth. Because all he could really do was tell people about the grace that David had bestowed on him. David, David didn't need Mephibosheth there. He didn't need him at his table. It wasn't for any benefit to him. He, he didn't invite Mephibosheth and say, okay, I, I need some help with some battle plans. Maybe you can help me with that, Mephibosheth. Or, or you know what, I have this new kingdom and maybe you can set up some like different borders and sections and we can get some democracy things going on. I don't know how politics works, but... Maybe that's what, you know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't ask Mephibosheth for anything. No, he did it because he wanted to. He did it because God had poured his love into his life. And he did it because he promised he would. He did it for Jonathan. And you know, God, he made promises to us too. After the fall, when everything was turned upside down and when creation rebelled against him and became his enemies, God promised something. He said, I'm going to send someone that's going to restore honor. I'm going to send someone that's going to crush evil and restore what's been lost. Jesus, the son of David, came into this world and did what David could never have done. He ushered in this kingdom not by, by swinging a sword at his enemies, but by dying at the hands of his enemies. And he didn't stay dead. He, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And it's because of that that we get to sit at the king's table. 
So what does that mean? What does it mean to sit at the king's table? Well, it means a couple of things. It means that you have fellowship with him. It means that you're part of his family. It means that you're secure in God's love. But, you know, how, how often do we, do we try to excuse ourselves from the table? Because, you know what? We feel like we haven't done enough for Jesus this week. Or we, we feel that we haven't read our Bibles enough. We haven't been patient enough. We have this, this sin that no matter how hard we fight it, it seems to just keep crawling back up. And, and we just get so frustrated and guilty. And so what we do is we slide off our chairs to go because we don't think we deserve to be there. And, and Jesus, he calls after us and he says, listen, you're not at the table because of what you've done. You're at the table because of me, because of what I've done on the cross. You're not here because you're so good. You're here because of me. When the Father sees you in your sin and shame, he sees my sacrifice on the cross completely covering you. You're safe. You're secure. Have, have more mashed potatoes. T tell me more about what's got you bogged down with so much guilt. Tell me what's making you so anxious. Why are you so afraid? That's what it means to feast at the table of grace. And that happens already now. And that's going to happen into eternity. You know, when it's all over and, and when this world gets passed away, and Jesus comes back, we will feast with him forever in perfection. And let me tell you, it is going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. And until then, Jesus, he's still at it, seeking and saving the lost. Just as David sent soldiers to knock on the door of Mephibosheth's house, King David, oh sorry, King Jesus now knocks on your door. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus, he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save us. He came to invite me and he came to invite you to sit at his table. And so the question you need to wrestle with is, will you join him? Will you leave low to bar? Will you leave your shame and leave your sins and take your seat at the king's table? And if you are sitting at the king's table, then there is nothing more for you to do. Just share the incredible testimony of how Jesus took you in your shame and in your sin and he gave you a place of honor at the table of King Jesus, where you will feast with him forever and into eternity. This is the gospel this morning. This is what gives us hope and peace into this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this huge redemptive story of grace. When we fell into sin, we became enemies. We became your enemies but you didn't leave us there and you didn't destroy us. No, you sent us your son, Jesus Christ, to enter into this world and to save us from our sin. You gave us Jesus to remove the shame and give us a place of honor at your table. 
And as our hearts lay open from this message, we pray that you would fill us now with your spirit. Then we would realize that we are Mephibosheth and it's only by your grace. It's only your grace in our lives that we can now stand before you as forgiven and loved sons and daughters. And so, Father, we we pray that you would charge us full of this and use us this week to powerfully witness this testimony of your grace in our lives. Give us boldness to share this gospel of Jesus to our friends and our neighbors, our co-workers, whoever you put in front of us, so that they too may be lifted from their shame, lifted from their sin, and given a seat at the king's table. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.